Welcome to Stories in Life. You're on the radio with Mark and Joe. We share stories that affirm your belief in the goodwill, courage, determination, commitment, and vision of everyday people. Our goal is that through another person's story, you may find connection, no matter your place in life. The stories we select will be inspiring and maybe help you laugh, cry, think, or change your mind about something important in your life. Join us for this episode of Stories in Life. I think part of it is that uh, I did grow up in the south side of Chicago, and although I didn't notice at the time, you do when you're young, living uh, pretty uh, in poverty conditions. Uh, I remember growing up and we lived in the back of a tavern on 51st and Hermitage, what they called in Chicago the back of the yards, because it was in the back of the stockyards. And when the wind blew the one way, you knew you were in the back of the stockyards. <laughs> so we lived in there. Um, we didn't have um, any direct heat. We didn't have uh, a bathroom. We didn't have hot water. We had cold water that ran to a kitchen sink. And my parents bought a big cattle tub. And what they would do is they would set up the cattle tub in the middle of the kitchen floor, and then they would heat water on the stove and pour it into water in the cattle tub till it got to a, a, a temperature that was relatively comfortable. And that's how we take our bath. Uh, the toilet we used was a toilet that the patrons in the tavern used. And we had to go out uh, in the middle of the night and go to the tavern bar and go in there and I remember as a kid being kind of really frightened because I would go in to do my duty and lock the door and then drunks would come and pound on the door and get out of there get out of there and I'm going I'm doing my best you know <laughs> and, and uh, so anyway I think uh, what I've had later in life is a lot of gratitude that I don't live like that anymore Because the other thing my dad taught me, he was very simplistic. He said, if you get an eighth grade education, you're that much ahead of people that don't have an eighth grade education. If you get a high school education, you're, you know, and so on and so forth and so on. And uh, so he was never educated. He never graduated from high school, but he understood the importance of it. And while we didn't get along, he taught me that, and I really appreciated that. This is a story of gratitude. This is a story that comes from experiencing life in meaningful ways and wanting to use this feeling of gratitude to give back. This is a story of making a commitment to people who live in another part of the world and making an annual effort to help them in some ways with time, information, money, or other needed resources. This is a story of my friend Dan Kuzlik who for 30 years has offered his skills, knowledge, and financial support to a small community in Chimbote, Peru, 
I think you will really enjoy this story. Okay, Joe, we've got a couple friends today visiting with us. A longtime friend of mine, Dan Kuzlik, who I met, I think, sometime in, uh, let's see, 1996 or 1997, way yeah. back there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, a, it's just a real joy to have you here. So we Dan Kuzlik and Sally Latimer, uh, two great travelers, and they've got a wonderful story to share. Welcome, Dan. Well, welcome, Sally. Thank you, guys. And we're here to learn a little bit more about uh, Dan's 30 years plus with Friends of Chimbote. So let's start with that. Dan, tell us a little bit about Chimbote and uh, how you got started, where it is in the world. First of all, our listeners sure. are going to have to Google it otherwise. So, <clears throat> Well, I'll start with that. So Chimbote is a seaside city. It's about 400 kilometers north of Lima, Peru. Lima being the capital city. So it's a coastal city. And um, uh, I'll, I'll get to some, some uh, specifics later, but how I got involved is uh, I got a job offer in the Minnetonka schools where I met Mark. And I was uh, living and working in Oregon at the time. And I got re recruited to Minnetonka. And the person who I replaced uh, said to me, you know, he said, have you ever heard of Rotary? And I said, I've heard of it. I don't know much about it. He said, well, I belong to the Rotary Club here in Excelsior, Minnesota, right next to Minnetonka, Lake Minnetonka. And he said, you don't have to, but I would suggest that you join Rotary because as the executive director of community education, you'll meet people there that are great contacts to work with. So I said, good, I, I can do that. So I joined the Rotary Club. And uh, what I found out about Rotary was that it, it's an international uh, organization. But the Excelsior Club didn't have any contact with any international group. So I kind of pressed that a little bit. And finally, uh, myself, uh, a, a female lawyer, uh, Margaret Grathall, who goes by her uh, childhood name of Pook, Pook I, and a retired uh, FBI agent went down to Shimbote to see if it would be a project that would be worthwhile. Now, the reason he chose Shimbote because Pook had been in the Peace Corps and she had worked in South America and she had gotten together with friends like Peace Corps people do and they kind of tour. And she ended up at Shimbote one time and met this priest, Catholic priest, Father Jack Davis. And Jack had taken his, what they call parochia, which is a Catholic parish, and expanded it, almost like community education, which I was involved in. So he didn't just do religious things and masses. He helped people where they needed help. It could be medical, it could be social, it could be housing, whatever it was, he was there. So Jack got this thing going. We went down there and Pook and I and uh, uh, Mr. Gray, who was the retired FBI agent, said, brought it back. We said, this is a good project. I mean, if we want to get involved in a project, these people need help. Now let's talk about why. Shimbote as a coastal city had been there for eons. The Incas had been there. And what the Incas survived on was seafood. Obviously right there. Easy fishing. They didn't overfish, of course. Well, now we get into some issues where we talk about climate change. Climate change started to change things. It took currents, warm currents, way away from the coast. And that's where the fish followed. So it was not economical anymore for fishermen 
to go that far out to catch fish, to bring back, to market it, to make money. So Dan, uh, tell us a little bit. Now you're part of the board of directors of a, is it a foundation or? Yeah. We tell have us a, about that. a nonprofit called Friends of Chibote and they are organized out of Fargo, North Dakota. And uh, in addition to that, we have set up a Peruvian nonprofit that are kind of boots on the ground in Chimbote. Our role primarily up here is fundraising. We raise the funds, and then the board down in uh, Chimbote decides what are the immediate projects that we, they would like funded. They present their plans to us, and then we fund them at whatever levels we either feel appropriate or have resources to do. So when we go down there, we definitely meet with the uh, with the local board. They talk to us about needs. We come back, we raise money, and then we fund it through there. It sounds like what a, a, a really creative way for uh, people to support people in another country. How do you do your fundraising? The founders of the uh, of the organization back before it was formerly Friends of Chimbote. Uh, was called Amigos de Padre Juan, Friends of Father Jack. And he and a nun down there worked very closely to set up all of these programs. Uh, now, the story I can tell about Jack is that he's a saint, absolutely a saint. He's got no good skills on management. <laughs> and when I say management, I mean financial management. So like the first time we were down there, he would take us through the the various asteras and the people. And a little old woman, you know, about four feet ten, would come out all shriveled up and whispering Jack's ear, and he'd say, Dan, give me a hundred solis, <laughs> which is a Peruvian money. Then he'd give it to her. No accountability, no records, no nothing. But he did it from the heart, sure. of course. And then finally, when it got very much bigger, uh, people decided, you know, we need to have a little bit more organization here. We've set up a 501c3 up in Fargo, and they've got to follow certain rules and regulations sure. and accountability. So that's when the uh, Friends of Chibote uh, came about. Uh, the fundraising, uh, I'm going to get back to, he was a very good evangelist. He would come down and do roots in the United States, for example, in other countries too, England, Germany, France, Ireland. And he would just tell the story and it really would move people. And I remember he would, what he would do a lot, he'd take like a, a, a can of uh, Campbell's beans and he would hold it up and he'd say, you know, I just bought this at the local store. He might've bought it uh, three weeks before. <laughs> I just bought this at the local store and it cost me 87 cents. This is what the average Chimbotean earns in one day. 87 wow. cents. Wow. American. And of course, the people would just, they couldn't believe that abject poverty existing anywhere. And uh, so he got followers. People would donate uh, to them. Uh, we used to do some big fundraisers here in the Twin Cities. And in Prior Lake, uh, there was a, uh, a church there that became very, St. Michael's, that became very, very involved. And they would do big uh, fundraisers like 200, 250 people. And that fell out of, you know, it's it's not uh, what people do anymore, you know, to go to big things like that. 
but the continued followers. And we do have a website. People can go to the website and they can see stories and they can hear what happens. And then some of us on the board and others do a little bit of evangelism. <laughs> you know, we'll send out a little letter uh, and say, no pressure, but if you're thinking at the end of the year of giving a little bit, uh, here's a project that you might want to think about. So that's the way we do our fundraising. And can you tell us about uh, how the money's used? Yeah, um, uh, it's very uh, eclectical in the sense that there's some main things, soup kitchens, uh, medical services, social services. It became very important during COVID of buying and supplying oxygen, which just wasn't available. And they had the resources to do that. They had the resources to teach people how to wear masks, you know, uh, wash your hands, do things like that. So that was important. But also, uh, currently, a big thing is housing. And uh, well, I've had the opportunity to purchase two houses for families down there. And what we'll do, and what Sally and I will do next week and that following week, uh, the social workers down there who we've hired will identify families. And they'll say these people are in much need. Very typically, it's a single mother with three, four, five children living in an Astera all sleeping on the same dirty mattress or on the floor. And the first thing we do is we go in and we tear that thing down. And it's ugly work. I mean, you don't want to go in there and think that people actually lived in those conditions. You tear it down completely and start over. And then we've contracted with groups out of Lima. They build prefabricated wooden housing. And it's not to the standards that we would have. They're probably like two by two framing, uh, but it's wood and there's a good frame. And the houses that I uh, bought, I made sure that they had a concrete floor. You can, you can do them without a concrete floor, but I just think there's so much more dignity if you live on a floor that you can clean rather than sweeping dirt. <laughs> mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, so we, we're doing a lot of that lately. A lot of housing is big. And then the other thing is water at any, you know, developing country. Uh, clean water is just, um, you know, it's the biggest thing. So uh, currently, and Sally will see this when we go down, and I've had a chance to see a little preliminary. We've uh, taken some wells that w have been dug, and we're working on a distribution system to pump water up into a large cistern water tank that we see around uh, here in Minnesota. And then through gravity, bring that, it's up on a hill, bring that water down right now to central places. We don't have enough resources to deliver them to each home, but eventually then to deliver them to homes so that people have clean water. Uh, do you have any stories about Chimbote? Of course, I've got a lot of stories. Um, some uh, that kind of jump into my mind. When I first went down there, and I, I had referenced the priest, uh, Father Jack Davis, he was very unconventional as a priest. In fact, he always got in a lot of trouble with the bishops down there and the archbishops. So if you would <laughs> as go to, would we, <laughs> of course. <laughs> if you would go to um, one of his services, dogs would be walking up and down the aisles. They'd be walking across the altar. Uh, a, uh, uh, one of his altar boys had Down syndrome. Uh, and uh, 
just bought a house for him about two years ago, and unfortunately he just passed away. But uh, Topo was his name, and he served and you know uh, very focused. When it was time to ring the bells, he did them just right. He knew what to do. But then you also had other characters move around, and one uh, person that I really became good, very good friends with. Her name was Maruha. And Maruha was born way up on a terrible pig farm on the border of Peru and Ecuador. And she was born crippled and blind. Now up there, that would be what they call a throwaway baby. She's female. No good to anybody. She's crippled. She's blind. I mean, literally put her on the ice floor if they had one. Uh, so anyway, her mother was smart enough to take Maruja and take her down to a city on the coast called Trujillo. And in Trujillo, she literally gave Maruja to a convent of nuns. And the nuns took her as a child, educated her, you know, fed her, clothed her, taught her Braille, taught her Spanish and then English, and then uh, eventually she moved around a bit to various agencies, but she ended up with uh, Padre Juan, Jack Davis, in Chimpote. And he gave her a job, which was you know, some dignity, and she basically swept the kitchen and took care of the kitchen duties as best she could. So I met Maruja, and she was just great. She was, I was so impressed that somebody with that many handicaps she was multiply fluent in English and Spanish, so she translated a lot for me. But she also, because of visitors that came into the mission, picked up uh, French, German, Italian, and could speak at least uh, conversationally with those languages. So we became friends, and she had a wicked sense of humor. Smart she gal. Was very smart. And she was just stubborn about her handicaps. She didn't think she had any handicaps. So she confided in me. She said, you know, Don, and she would say, Don, I would really like to go up and see my brother, uh, Defonso, up where I grew up on the, on the pig farm. I said, well, uh, I'll take you up there if you'll take Jackie, Yaki, as they call her, the cook, because I was going to go up with a woman alone and have to take care of her. So she said, fine. So we went up to uh, this place on the border. And we went to Trujillo, we went to uh, uh, Acabaca, and each time we went, we were on a different mode of transportation. We took like a relatively large bus up to Trujillo, then a smaller uh, taxi bus up to Acabaca, and then finally we're on the back of this pickup truck up to Sakaya, which is the name of the town, or not a town, but a place that where she grew up. And about how far was that from Chimbote? Uh, that was about three days. <laughs> so we traveled about three days. And so anyway, when we got to Akabaka and we we're going up with Sakaya, I said, no, Maruja, how does uh, Aldefonso know to, to meet us? Because he's going he's to bring horses up. And what they do is they tie Maruja onto the uh, horse and the saddle with bedsheets you know, because she doesn't have the balance. So... She can't see what's going on, so they tie her in. I said, well, when Aldefonso comes up with the horses, how does he know we're going to be there? He says, oh, we talked to him by radio. 
Well, that's pretty sophisticated. I don't know. You have two-way radios. You could talk to your brother. I thought it was an old pig farm. So we get up there, and the, the truck dropped us off, and we're up there on top of a mountain. Nobody there. And I said, well, Maruha, did you tell Adefonso to come up? He said, yeah, he heard on the radio. And I said, well, what did he say? He was a, what do you mean? I said, well, what did he say when you talked to him on the radio? He said, oh, no, we just tell the little local station that's doing Peruvian music. They say, Aldefonso, if you're listening, Maruja and the, and the gringo is coming up. I meet him up in the mountain. <laughs> I said, oh, boy. <laughs> so we waited probably about two hours. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and finally, I said, Maruja, is this the path to your deal? He said, yeah, it's a couple of kilometers away. I said, I will go down. So I went down, and halfway down, I met a young man that said he was Maruja's cousin or something. And he said, I will take you right to where we need to go. So we started walking down, and we were in a kind of heavy bush. And we came over a hill, and down in the valley, there were about a dozen men in white pants, white coats, and white hats. And he goes, Arbajo, get down. I said, okay, what's going on? What's going on? He said, the banditos. And the banditos are protecting their cocaine. And we don't want them to see us. <laughs> so they finally went away. And then a little further down, uh, here comes Aldefonso with the horses. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not going to walk back, Aldefonso. I'll have, I forgot his name, the cousin. He'll take me down. You get Maruja and Yaki. And you can come down later. So that's what happened. But it was just an interesting story that uh, culturally, I thought a radio meant a two-way radio. And for them, it meant we'll just broadcast over the valley. Yeah. And hopefully, Aldefonso's listening to the radio. Yeah. Not unlike a podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And now it's time for Stories in Life, Art from the Heart, Deep Thoughts from the Shallow End. Each episode we bring you a poem, a song, or a reading just for you. This is a communication of gratitude sent from my friend Neil to his children. And I wanted to share this one as our art from the heart today. Here goes. The one thing that has had the most positive impact on my life is being thankful. Gratitude unlocked the fullness of my life. It turned what I have into enough and more. It turned denial into acceptance chaos into order, confusion into clarity. Gratitude turns a meal into a feast, my house into a home, a stranger into a friend. It has turned problems into gifts, failures into successes, and mistakes into important events. Gratitude helped me make sense of my past and brings peace to most days. Gratitude makes things right, turns negative energy into positive energy. I said thank you until I meant it. I said it long enough until I believed it. When I feel lonely, alone, wanting someone to be there for me, 
I found the quickest way out of that feeling is to give love and to give thanks. So we also need to ask you a little bit about your global travels, because I know that, first of all, Dan, you're the only person I know that can pick up and go to another country in a few days. <laughs> you're really good at that. Uh, you've done that probably for 40 years, maybe. Yeah. For yeah. sure, 30, as long as I've known you. Sure. And I was sharing that with Joe earlier, that I don't know anybody who travels as much as you have uh, with the frame of learning. You know, and I have a son that's doing that now as part of his profession. But uh, tell us about that. What got you? I mean, come on, you're a kid from South Chicago. Yeah. yeah. South Side Chicago, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what got you the bug to step off a dock and go travel? Yeah. Well, it's it, it was very interesting to me anyway. Uh, I never was in the airplane until I was about 25 years old. You know, you know, that wasn't something that you would do, at least with the way I grew up. And I loved it. And then I got into my profession. Um, I ran for some, uh, I threw my name in, I should say, rather than ran, to volunteer to be uh, uh, various part of the leadership of certain groups. And I became um, the president of what was then called, it's no longer in existence, the National Community Education Association. And the National Community Education Association had international uh, conferences every four years. And one year, because I was president, I was able to go to um, Thailand, where they had their, their conference that year. And I just loved it. I mean, I loved the, the difference, uh, the cultural difference, the architectural difference, the language difference. And uh, I just said, this is for me. Then I also professionally just jumping because I was just telling somebody on the telephone this uh, this morning. Uh, I did a, a keynote presentation uh, in Krasnyark, Siberia, and it was just after the uh, Berlin Wall had fallen, and all of the stands who were under communist rule—Uzbekistan, Turkestan, Afghanistan—they said, "Okay, now we're not communist anymore. What do we do?" You know, we're supposed to be a democracy. We, you know, what do we do? So they set up this conference, and I did a keynote. And at the end of my keynote, a woman came up to me, an old woman, and she spoke English. And she says, well, I, I, I heard your, your, your talk, and uh, I liked it very much. And I want to let you know, in our village, 
The name Kuzlik means little goat. <laughs> and if you will come to my village, I will make you a meal of camel and goat. <laughs> I didn't make that appointment, but I did know that I was a little goat. And, uh, and of course, my, my, my uh, maternal background is Polish. My father was born in the United States, but his parents were born in Poland. And two or three years ago, uh, where we live in downtown Minneapolis, they had a, uh, a Polish festival. And they had a booth where you could go in there and trace your name to where that name was in Poland. So I had always thought that maybe my parents or grandparents had shortened my name from Kuzliski and dropped the ski like they did at Ellis Island for a lot of groups and became Kuzlik. But they said, no, Kuzlik is a regular Polish name. And they live in the Krakow area. And by the way, your name in Poland means little cow. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm a little cow or a little goat, but I'm a little something. <laughs> we love that about you, Dan. So you guys are heading there next week. Uh, you're going to take down a couple houses. What else do you have planned? I'm on the board. So there's a group of about 40 of us going down. This is larger than usual. People bringing spouses, some bringing children that are going to work. So the organizer has put this together very well, put people in groups so that when our board is meeting and we're meeting with the, with the uh, local board down there talking about what's going on and what we can do, people that are not on the board will be out there doing various things in the community, working the soup kitchen, um, other things. And then sometimes we as a board will be working with them and sometimes not. Uh, one example, I just love this. I've done this a couple of times now. Uh, this year, for a lot of reasons, I'm not, I don't have the resources to buy another house. But what I am supporting is called the Loaves and Fishes campaign. And what they do is they go up into a very, very impoverished neighborhood. The night before, they contract with fishermen to go out and catch sea bass, they ice them down in the early morning, they bring them up, and then they bring um, some kind of a vegetable. It could be a yucca, it could be an avocado or something, or avocado is a fruit, but something like that. And then they bring pan. Pan is bread. And of course, pan is a, like a staple, bread, bread, bread. And what we actually do, give people plastic bags, like a Target bag, and they come and we drop a couple of fish in there. We drop a loaf, of, uh, a bag of a pan, which are rolls, throw in some yucca, throw in some avocado. And they, for at least one night and probably more than one night, they're going to eat well. And they're just, you know, they just line up and I've given fresh water. Water's important up there too. But it's, uh, so I get to sponsor one of those this time and, and Sally will be up there with me. Oh, how fun. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's very, because it's so direct, you know, it's immediate. Yeah. You know that those people at that night, even if they usually go to bed hungry, are going to eat fish and pond, avocado, and yucca. That's great. Yeah, that's just wonderful. If our listeners would like to get involved or learn more about your organization, what's your website? It's called friendsofshimbote.org. So friends, just like the word, and Shimbote is spelled C-H-I-B-O-T-E, and that's one word, .org. And we've got a website that talks about some of the things we do. Actually has a couple of videos on there to show. I think they've got one of me kissing a fish <laughs> <laughs> before I gave it out. Uh, 
And yeah, and uh, so if, if if people were just interested in finding out more about it, that would be great, just so they'd have that information. If they ended up, there's a place that they can donate online. Uh, they could click on there and and uh, you know give a credit card, a secure credit card, and donate something. So we'll, we'll at the end of our episode, we'll put the website. Uh, we'll we'll say that again for people. Good. I'd also like to ask you one more thing. A very important question. What kind of music do you listen to? I, I'm really pretty eclectic in music. I have to admit, I just can't quite get into rap. It just hasn't done it for me yet. Old rock and roll, folk music, classical music, um, jazz. I really liked jazz growing up in Chicago, especially, you know, some of the, uh, the older jazz. Duke Ellington, stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. Dave Brewerick. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, progressive jazz, you know, and, uh, and then also I really like, and this was even before I got involved in Chimbote, I like the kind of bossa nova, South American, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, Sergio Mendez, uh, some of those, uh, some of the saxophone players uh, from South America. Great. Really- so we want you to come back after Chimbote with some recordings from the field, and we'll take another shot at this. Sounds great. Thank you so much nice for to doing meet this. You guys. It was wonderful. Thanks for being Great here. Great job. We have one special addition to this episode. Sally Latimer interviewed Father Jack. And if you're interested, you can keep listening for a few more minutes and hear firsthand his story of 40 plus years of working in Chimbote, Peru, in leading community efforts for improvement and change. So thank you, Sally Latimer and Dan Kuzlik, for providing this wonderful episode. I don't remember exactly the year, but one day I was visiting with Marlene Christensen in Fargo, and she said that she knew of uh, Gary Zespi, who had heard me speak at Holy Spirit Parish in Fargo, and he would like to meet me. And so I said, well, yeah, let's get together for coffee. So he went over to Marlene and Boyd Christensen's home, And we started talking about Chimbote, and I said, Gary, the most important thing, I think, is for you to go down to Chimbote and see Chimbote, and then you you respond how you can. So Gary went down, he came back to Fargo, and he set up a 501c3 status, and and we named, he named basically, the, the new organization called Los Amigos del Padre Juan. And because of that, and that wonderful decision on the part of Gary, we were able to receive major donations from people who wished to claim it on their income tax as a donation to a charitable organization. But to do that, it has to be of a 501c3 status. That was actually the beginning. And through that effort of Gary's SB, uh, things really took off, and we were able to help so many more people with many different types of projects. And uh, when I left uh, the parish in 2013, we had seven soup kitchens, seven libraries, a medical post, a uh, hospice for the dying. We had four centers for uh, delinquents for pandillas juveniles, 
and uh, <clears throat> so many different projects taking place thanks to the support that we received. And then later on, we changed the name to Friends of Chimbote. And that is what is continuing. And years ago, when we started, 20 some years ago, we were building homes out of Astera. And now Friends of Chimbote and the organization in Chimbote called ACAF, Asociación Civil Apoyo Familiar, is now building homes with um, uh, material uh, prefabricated uh, wood and cement floors, and they're wonderful, wonderful little homes, sometimes two, three bedroom homes. And it's such an upgrade from what we did with Sestera. These homes will last 20, 30, maybe even 40 years because it's a dry climate. However, the uh, Stera would last two, three, four, five years maximum. So it was, uh, it's, it really, things are moving up and we're working in developmental projects more so than individual help. And they've now taken a, a community called Cambio Puente. And uh, I was there just before I left to come up to, to Fargo. And they are putting in water to the homes. They built something like 20, 25 houses, pref uh, prefabricated <clears throat> homes out there. They set up a beautiful uh, uh, daycare center. And this group from uh, uh, Evangelical Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, Waypoint Church, uh, they were painting the Catholic Church. And that was marvelous stuff. So it's, it's really uh, going strong. I'm so terribly pleased and, and uh, grateful uh, the support that uh, Friends of Chimbote continues to help the poor in Chimbote, and not only in Chimbote itself, but Cambio Puente out, outside of Chimbote. But many uh, neighborhoods in Chimbote that are poorer than the one we started with, La Victoria, uh, you know, when I went there in 1986. So it's a great, uh, great thing. Things are happening, progress, and it certainly deserves all the support. Um, Peggy uh, left Chim uh, Fargo shortly thereafter and up and became president or became principal of a school in Langdon, North Dakota. And then she went down to visit me in 1982 and then came back to work. And from 1982 until about four years ago, maybe five now, time goes by, uh, did marvelous, marvelous work in Chimboti, especially in education. We started out in the parish of San Francisco de Assis, and then we moved over to a, a more a poorer parish called Nuestra Señora del Perpetuo Socorro. And that was at the time where there was a lot of um, violence and uh, atrocities taking place up in the mountains around Cusco and Ayacucho and Huaylas and those places, but it hadn't arrived in Chimbote. We were pretty much immune to this uh, terrorist violence. However, in 1990, on the 9th of August, uh, 91, excuse me, there was um, uh, two young Polish priests, Franciscans, Miguel and Zbigniew, were up in a place called Pariokoto, and they were murdered by the Shining Path. And that was just uh, 12, 10, 12 days after 
Padre Miguel Company, a priest from uh, Spain, from Mallorca, Spain, who had been ordained the same week I was in 1969. He was shot in the head and the bullet went under his ear and over his tongue and he survived. But that was an attempt by the Shining Path, Sendero Luminoso. And they were the ones that attacked and killed Miguel Espignev. And in, in uh, August 25th, uh, Padre Sandro Dorti was um, murdered by them. And he had planned to leave on the 26th to get out of his parish in Santa, but he said, well, I've got baptisms, I've got things to do in Vinsos. And so on the way back from Mass in Vinsos, the, the communist um, put up a roadblock, he got out of his Jeep, begged them not to kill him, and they shot him, left his body in the sand and drove away in his Jeep. So uh, it was a pretty difficult time for us. And my name appeared on the, the death list. I had heard about it in um, August 15th. I got a death list on August 13th myself. And then we were warned that they were going to kill three foreign priests per week on the 15th of August. And then they killed Padre Sandro on the 25th. And then the 27th, my name appeared on a list of uh, bulletins uh, distributed in a place called Trapecio. And uh, the bishop said I had to leave, and I went on the plane with him uh, down to Lima, with, accompanied by three uh, Italian sisters. Padre Sandro was from the Diocese of Bergamo in Italy. And on that com in that trip conversation with the th three nuns, they were talking about Sandro's last days, 15 days of his life, and uh, he said to them, when he got news that they had killed Miguel and his big nephew, he said, I will be next and after me, Juanito. The Shining Pass, we're going to kill him and then we'd kill me. Well, they did get, kill him. And so I was down in Lima and hi in hiding in Lima. And then finally the superior said I had to get out of the country. So I went up to Guayaquil, Ecuador. And I stayed up there until the 10th of December and went back to Chimbote. Uh, the bishop said I could return, and then they sent me down to Lima and Caraballo and after Christmas, and then I went back to Chimbote for Lent, and then they sent me back, and I ended up in Holy Week in Managua, Nicaragua, mm -hmm. and then I went over to study in, in Belgium and around the United States, and then got back for my, my uh, right after my birthday in August, and then they captured Abimiel Guzman, the founder of Sendero Luminoso, and we felt a little more secure, but it actually took years and the post-trauma and all this that had happened. I used to stay in a different house every night. And so uh, it, was, uh, it was not fun oh. to be on a death list. And Sister Peggy and Wilder, when I'd go to a different place, Wilder Benitez, who lived in the house, uh, Wilder and Sister Peggy didn't know where I was. So that meant that if they did come for me, they would know. And that, that enabled me to get a good night's sleep because I knew when I was at my place in the parish, uh, the dogs would bark and I'm thinking they're coming over the wall and, and I couldn't sleep. So it, would, uh, it went on for, for months and months, even after uh, Bimiel Guzman. But uh, we, we got through it and... The Lord blessed us and the Lord gave us the courage and 
And uh, most of us continued on in Chimbote and uh, until I left in uh, basically that parish in, in 2013. Amazing, amazing story. Thank you, Father Jack. Boy, Mark, Father Jack's commitment, 40 years, uh, friends of Chimbote and uh, Dan's 30 years. I mean, that's that's real commitment. That's making it happen down there. Yeah, it's amazing. That's, that's impressive. It is and a very impressive commitment. Just think how many lives they've changed yeah. in that 40 years. Yeah, very true. There was some reference about Shining Path. What did you find out about that? Well, the Shining Path is a communist group in Peru. Uh, let's see here. The Shining Path launched its war against Peruvian society in July 1980. Its goal is to destroy Peru's governmental and social institutions and replace them with a radical Marxist Maoist regime. Interesting name, Shining Path. Shining Path. And then how about our music today? Well, uh, there was the Peruvian instrumental Elsa. That's by Los Desteos. Uh, We also had uh, the infamous Dave Brubeck off his Time Out album. That was Take 5 from 1959. And then the Bossa Nova music was Samba Sarava by Pauli Croze. And then, folks, if you're interested, friendsofshimbote.org is the website where you can gain more information about making donations and the work that's being done down there. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mark. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please join us again next time on Stories in Life on the radio with Mark and Joe. And visit our website at storiesinlife.buzzsprout.com or email us at storiesinlifepodcast at gmail.com.